you want to go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6, and we'll be picking up where we left off last week uh, in verse 12 of Luke chapter 6. And once you are there in your Bibles, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon whom was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. Once again, you have had the uh, immense privilege and honor of having the Word of God read aloud to you. I pray that you would receive it as such. We don't open the Bible week after week after week just because church has always done so. We do so under the conviction that we hear from God when we read His Word out loud. And so we study His Word and we uh, labor over it week after week after week because we're convinced, uh, and rightly so, that this is testimony not just written by men, but testimony delivered from God to his people for their edification. So that is why uh, you'll notice that week after week, we continue where we left off the previous week, whether that be a list of names or whether that be uh, very interesting stories. Um, The reason we study scripture and move through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse, phrase by phrase, line by line, is because it is the very word of God. And we, with our whole lives, are wise to dedicate ourselves to studying it. This week, uh, we find ourselves in chapter 6 and verses 12 through 16 of Luke's gospel, the gospel according to Luke. And the title of this study together is He Called and He Chose. He Called and He Chose. In this account, we have Luke's accounting of the choosing of the 12 apostles. Now, there's much to get into, so I want to get right into the text. And so the very first thing you're going to see in this account is the prayer for those disciples. In verse 12, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. The he in this text is referring to Jesus. That's very important for us to know because he's not explicitly mentioned, but the he refers to Jesus. And to know that, you just have to go read in the previous line, the last person who was mentioned in verse 11 is those uh, who are going to harm Jesus. And then the next pronoun mentioned is a he. And he goes up to the mountain to pray. And we're told this introductory phrase to set up this prayer time. It says, in these days. Now that doesn't refer to a specific period of time. That doesn't refer to something in chronology. What that refers to is the moment of intense uh, conflict that Jesus is in with the Pharisees. You'll notice Luke for the last couple of uh, weeks has been setting up for us this increasing conflict with the Pharisees. He's doing miracles, Jesus is healing people, he's teaching, and all of this is bringing about conflict with the religious leaders. And it's at this kind of moment of conflict that Luke writes that it's in these days Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. The growing conflict is the scene in which the disciples are chosen, and he names among those disciples the twelve. And it says he goes up to a mountain to pray. And what that might bring to your mind is something similar that happens in the Old Testament where Moses goes up to the mountain to receive the law of God and to commune with him. Indeed, Elijah is on a mountain when he communes with God. And so there's nothing necessarily uh, spiritual that we're reading into that. It's just good to observe that many significant kinds of communion with God happen on mountains in Scripture. And so Jesus, no different, goes up to a mountain to pray. And Luke doesn't just leave it there. He tells us that all night is how long he prays, and he continues in prayer to God all night. Now, we had the privilege uh, last night of discussing at length uh, the theology and Scripture's testimony of prayer. And so I will not once again rehash many of those details, but I would like to point out a few things that we can learn from this night of prayer. The first thing we can note 
is that whenever scripture mentions Jesus being up all night, neglecting sleep and neglecting rest, there's only one thing that he's ever doing to neglect rest, and that is to pray. Now, I don't know how ever you have chosen to live your life, but I can imagine if you've ever been through college or in high school or you've ever had uh, friends hang out with you, that there has been times where you have stayed up a good majority or maybe perhaps all of the night. And when we're doing those kinds of decisions, when we're making those kinds of choices, we choose to stay up all night neglecting sleep, neglecting rest, possibly for the purpose of enjoyment, possibly for the purpose of cram studying for an exam. It is my conviction that there is no better time to study for an exam than the eight hours leading up to it. But we never see that really in Scripture. In Scripture, whenever it mentions someone stays up all night, it's usually to watch guard over a city that's about to be destroyed or to pray. And so I, it's very convicting, I think, that we don't necessarily consider prayer in our culture worthy of staying up for and losing sleep over, but we would consider many leisure activities and fellowship opportunities worthy of losing sleep for. Now, that is not necessarily a commentary on our values, so much as it is an exhortation or maybe uh, an opportunity for us to consider the importance of prayer, at least the importance that Jesus gives to it. Jesus is not someone who's well-rested all the time so he can go regularly without sleep. Jesus is a man just like any other person. And when he goes without sleep, he's going to feel the effects of that the next day. And nevertheless, leading up to one of the most important decisions of his ministry, he spends a whole night dedicating his time in prayer to God. It says he prays all night to God. Now, that's another piece that we can learn from this part of the text. It says that he continues in prayer to God. If you're not praying to God, you're not praying at all. Jesus orients his prayer to the Father. And that is a very significant detail because in our culture and in our postmodern world, the term prayer is very loosely thrown around to mean a great majority of things. One of which is in the vocabulary of what prayer means is sometimes, I hope you are blessed and you're doing well. I'm praying for you, we will often say. But we don't often mean prayer when we say that. What we mean is, I hope maybe that someone out there is praying for you, but not indeed that we're bringing that prayer to God. Jesus and the whole testimony of Scripture has no concept of that idea of prayer. Prayer is always oriented towards God, and it's not a hope, it's not a wish, it's not a want, it is a communion kind of interaction with God. Prayer is also not something we do interpersonally in our own minds to just ourselves as a form of meditation or processing. Prayer has a termination point, and that termination is an almighty sovereign king over all the universe who can affect change according to his will. That is the definition of what is involved with prayer. And I fear that in a postmodern world, in a postmodern context, the church is doing a bad job of holding on to that kind of definition of prayer. In fact, if you've grown up in the evangelical church, you might have fallen victim to certain kinds of thinking about prayer that fall outside of the scope of what I've just mentioned. And so the exhortation is to recapture what prayer is all about. Prayer is about communing with an almighty sovereign king over all the universe who listens and hears and considers and then acts according to the prayers of his people. Indeed, in Revelation, we get this beautiful picture of God who has a bowl of incense poured out before him. And that bowl of incense is the prayers of the saints. And it's a bowl that is incense and it's worship to God that brings him glory and honor. And he is pleased to answer the prayers of his people. And no doubt, Jesus sets the precedent for us by spending a whole night continuing in prayer to God. And as Jesus goes, so we who are called to imitate Jesus also go. And so we are exhorted to regularly, for long periods of time, and at great uh, fervor, pray to God. That is what we are exhorted to do by the example here of Jesus. Now Luke has emphasized, and he's really the only one who emphasizes this night of prayer before the choosing of the twelve. In fact, if you were to compare this account to the other gospels, the twelve are named in all of them, and even in the book of Acts they are repeated. But there's never another gospel that mentions prayer in conjunction with this event. And for us, that's significant because it tells us something about what Luke is communicating to us. And Luke stands alone in that he tries to emphasize prayer 
as it propagates in Jesus' ministry and throughout the early church. In fact, if you remember the baptism of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, it says he was praying while being baptized. It emphasizes that he was praying as he is baptized by John. It also mentions that Jesus, at another point in time, spends all night in prayer before he continues on in his ministry. In fact, he has a whole day of healing and doing miracles and teaching, and then he withdraws the next morning out in the quiet place to be alone with God and to pray. And Luke alone records those kinds of uh, details in the story. And this is not going to stop here. In fact, later in Luke's gospel, he's going to continue to emphasize the importance of prayer, both in the decisions that Jesus makes and before very particularly difficult times in the ministry of Jesus. In fact, you are probably familiar with one of those amazingly famous prayers, the high priestly prayer, which is prayed by Jesus for his disciples and for his followers the night before he is crucified. And in John's account, in John 17, we have this beautiful picture of what it looks like for Jesus to pray for his apostles. And while we don't have this prayer in verse 12 recorded for us anywhere in scripture, it would be difficult to imagine that it would have strayed very far from the kinds of prayer that we see in John 17, because he's praying for the same group of people. He's praying on their behalf, interceding for them. And in that prayer, he prays for their endurance. He prays for their uh, continued perseverance in the face of trial and suffering. He prays that they might be taken out of the world in the way that God the Father has been pleased to take his son out of the world. He prays for the Holy Spirit to come down and be with his people as God the Father pleases to do so. And he prays all of these things and he specifically says, I'm not praying for the whole world. I'm praying for those whom you have given me. I'm praying for my people. And he has this specific kind of orientation and love for his people, which he intercedes for them on their behalf. And in John 17, we get that picture and it is no doubt in my mind that it is very similar to the kind of prayer we see here in verse 12. He's praying for the same people, he's praying to the same God, and they're about to face the same kinds of difficulties that we see here in verse 12. This is the height of conflict thus far in Jesus's ministry, and it's only going to get harder from this point forward. In fact, the early church picks up on the model of prayer that Jesus puts forth here. Before Jesus picks his disciples, he prays. You'll see before Jesus's disciples pick the 12th disciple to replace Judas, they pray. Before they pick Paul and Barnabas to be set apart for missions, they pray. Before they select deacons for the church, they pray. Before they pick elders for each of the churches that Paul and Barnabas are propagating, they pray. The whole early church movement, also written in and recorded in Acts, also written by Luke, emphasizes this through line of prayer. And if you were to trace in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts the movement and theology of prayer, you would be amazed to see how it's the lifeblood of the church. It's the lifeblood of Jesus's ministry. It is the lifeblood of the church's ministry. And indeed, we would be foolish to not engage in the same way with prayer as Christ does. Verse 12 for us is an exhortation to do something the Western church has long lost, which is to be reliant on prayer over and above finances, over and above respect and reputation, over and above networking. We are to pray and we are exhorted and indeed commanded to do so in scripture. Jesus models this for us before he makes the biggest decision thus far in his ministry. As the first thing we notice from this text is that he prays for his disciples. And then in verse 13, we see a shift and it gives us an orientation as to what the whole night of prayer was all about. We see then the selection of those disciples. In verse 13, we see, it says, when day came, he goes down from the mountain and he calls his disciples. And it says, and he chose from them 12 whom he named as apostles. Now I want to pause there because in many cases in the Western church and in many cases in a church tradition, we refer almost interchangeably to the idea of a disciple and an apostle. And we see that Luke seems to emphasize and distinguish between those among the larger group who are called disciples and these special 12 who are named as apostles. And while those terms are interchangeable in many senses because the same people who are apostles were first disciples and indeed remain disciples for their entire ministry, the title of apostle and the position of apostle is special to these 12. 
Indeed, Jesus had many disciples. In, f- in fact, if you were to read the Gospels, you see how many people are following Jesus. In John chapter 6, we get this account of where Jesus is doing this hard teaching, and it says many of his disciples leave him. But he's left with the twelve, which tells us there were many more people present in his ministry besides just the twelve, who, are we, who we refer to often as the twelve disciples of Jesus. But these twelve are special in that Jesus chooses from the, ma- the, the rest of his disciples these 12, and he names them as apostles. Thus far in Luke's gospel, we've had the account of Jesus calling Peter to follow him as a disciple. We've seen Levi follow him as a disciple. We've seen Andrew follow him as a disciple. And we've seen James follow him as a disciple. But none of them have yet been named as apostles. None of them have yet been put in that different position. Now, what is the difference between a disciple and an apostle? Well, the word disciple carries with it not a special connotation to Jesus. In fact, in all of the first century, disciples are a very common thing for rabbis and teachers and sages of that time to have. If you were a wise teacher, people would put in essentially application to study underneath you, and they would then, if accepted, become your disciples. They would sit at your feet and follow you around and study what you taught, Very similarly to how we do professional uh, programs today where you have a PhD, where you study under another PhD who oversees your training, who oversees your study, and who makes sure that you are getting the kind of training you need to so that you can become like they are one day. That is the idea of a disciple. A disciple is in a lower position than the person who is teaching them. In fact, Jesus says that if you are my disciple, you will never be greater than I am. A disciple is no greater than the master who they follow. A disciple is really in the position of a servant in Scripture. It's not a position of authority or respect. That's different than the term apostle. The term apostle in the early church, as well as in the Old Testament, as well as even today, carries with it authority that the term disciple doesn't carry. A disciple is a student or a follower. An apostle is someone who speaks on behalf of somebody else. An apostle is one who is sent and carries the authority of the person who sends them. An apostle, if you like, is an ambassador of the person who has sent them. What they say carries the same weight and authority as what the person who sent them might say. So if you send an apostle out, if you're a a foreign king and you send out your apostle or your sent one out, and you send them to a foreign army, whatever that interaction takes place there, the person who's speaking on behalf of that king would speak as though they were the king themselves. And the kind of weight and authority of their words would bear with it and behind it the authority and the weight of the king. In the same way, when Jesus names these as his apostles, he names them as people who speak now on his behalf. And that is not a minor point because the whole early church movement is based on the teaching of the apostles. Jesus resurrects from the grave, he ascends into heaven, and then he leaves behind these apostles. And they're responsible now for spreading the gospel. They're responsible for teaching and instructing the church, for correcting false doctrine. And so the church has to orient itself, and we see this in the book of Acts, around the teaching and preaching of the apostles. And that's a special kind of designation, and there's a very limited group to which that authority goes. He names people to a position of authority over and above a disciple, and these people are referred to as apostles. In fact, Peter in, uh, or sorry, Paul in many of his letters takes great pains to stake his claim in an apostle type of authority. If he wasn't an apostle, he says you don't have to listen to him, but he makes great claims and pains to say that he is a sent one speaking on behalf of God for the benefit of the church. We see that Jesus prays all night, and this prayer is because he's about to instill his authority into a certain group of people whom he gives a certain kind of place at the table, which is different than any of the other disciples who are with him at the time. The 12 who are chosen are then named for us in the remainder of this text. And we're going to see the selection of them as follows. We see first and foremost, he names Simon Peter. It says Simon, whom he names Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, another Simon, this one who's called the Zealot, and then we have two Judases, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who we're given the detail, who became a traitor. Now this 
list of names is uh, two, twofold important. One is it contains a massive amount of church history in a very short set of verses. For example, if you think of Simon Peter, no doubt there's a whole bunch of scriptures that might come to mind, depending how familiar you are with the New Testament, about highs and lows of Simon Peter's ministry. Simon Peter is the first person who professes among the 12 Jesus to be someone more than just a rabbi, and also the first one who gets called Satan. He's the first person to hit both of those highs and lows, and in most gospels, that happens within two or three verses of one another. Peter is known for his cowardice as well as his boldness. He contains within him the tendencies of natural man as well as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit, and we see both of those things on display. In fact, if you read beyond the Gospels and into the book of Acts, you see that Paul tells about an account where he has to interact with Peter and indeed rebuke him for his tendency to go towards the law. And instead of doing what he is supposed to and what he knows is right, he caves to the oppression of man and to the fear of man, and he bows down to that. And nevertheless, Peter is named in a distinct role among the rest of the twelve. He is the rock. That is his name. It's Peter, which we call him here, but his real name is Simon. Peter is Petros. Another place you might see him referred to as in scripture is as Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic term which refers to rock. Petros is the Greek term which refers to rock. Both of them are not so much a name as they are a nickname about who he is and what he is like. Peter is the one who stands firm on the day of Pentecost, who preaches the first gospel message to the rest of the Jewish people, and he's the first one who gets to stand before the high court and tell them that they've got it all wrong and they need to repent for their sins and believe on the Jesus who they crucified. He's the rock in very many senses. The second one we see in this list who contains a great deal of church history is Andrew, the brother of Peter who we just saw. Andrew is actually the first person to encounter Jesus and he leads Peter to Jesus. He leads Peter to have this relationship to follow Jesus as a disciple. And Andrew is very significant in that sense in the New Testament. Besides that, there's very little mention of him. And that'll become significant later when we ask the question, what is the importance of this list of 12? The next two that we have mentioned there is James and John. James and John elsewhere in scripture are referred to as the sons of thunder. James and John are indeed fiery people. They have fiery personalities. And they have also, just like Peter, great highs and great lows. In fact, in one uh, account of the Gospels, you see James and John being frustrated about an interaction they have, people disrespecting Jesus, and they say, Jesus, should we pray and call down fire on these people? They consider themselves to be equivalent with Elijah in that sense. But nevertheless, Peter, or, sorry, Jesus has mercy on James and John and gently cares for and directs them. James and John become people who later become significant pillars in the early church. James is the first of the twelve to be martyred for his faith at the hands of Herod. In fact, when Herod has a choice between killing James or killing Peter, he decides to imprison Peter, considering him less of a threat than James, and then kills James instead. Just to tell you how significant of a threat James was to Herod's rule. Herod chooses to behead him. He's the first of the twelve to die a martyr's death. The other one, John, is an author of many of the New Testament books that we have. First, second, third John, as well as the gospel that bears his name, as well as the book of Revelation. John is an old man. He's the only of the 12 to live and uh, die a natural death. In many accounts, we say that while James, his brother, uh, suffered and died, John suffered and lived. John did not live by any means a comfortable life, being isolated and ultimately dying uh, in isolation for his faith. But John and James both carry with them this significant kind of personality that we see reflected in the New Testament. And they carry with them much history. Philip and Bartholomew are the next two mentioned. There's very little recorded about them in scripture, save for the fact that both Philip and Bartholomew are really stand-ins for a typical apostle. In many of the accounts with Jesus, you'll see Philip and Bartholomew almost speak on behalf of the people, giving us a good sense on the ground as to what the disciples' reaction was like. Philip, for example, uh, encounters Jesus and he goes and gets Bartholomew, who's called Nathaniel in John's gospel, and he brings him to Jesus. And we see both of them begin following Jesus as a disciple, but the whole time they're there, they're with the 12, but they're not really getting a lot of what's going on. And in that, they're a real stand-in for the rest of the 12 because many of the other 12 don't know what's happening either. They're just following after Jesus. 
The next one we see in verse 15 is Matthew. Matthew, we've seen in Luke's gospel already, is referred to as Levi. He's not the first nor the last who carries multiple names. In fact, we just saw Bartholomew, who's called Nathaniel in other places, Simon Peter, who's also called Cephas. We see now uh, Matthew, who's also called Levi. And then the next one who I want to talk a little bit about is Thomas. Now, there's very little known about Thomas. In fact, though, if you've grown up in church, you might refer to him as Doubting Thomas. That's a very common nickname for him. But I would like to show you one other account that we have of Thomas in the Gospels. And the reason I'm going to go there is because it's not elsewhere in Luke, so we can, we're safe to turn there. So if you'll turn with me to John chapter 11, I want to show you an encounter that Thomas has with Jesus. If you look at John chapter 11 with me, and I'm going to start reading in verse 7. So Jesus has just found out that his friend Lazarus has uh, become ill, and he's received the news. And so in uh, verse 7, uh, he turns to his disciples, and, after, and it says, after this, after he receives this news, he says, let us go to Judea again. And verse 8 says, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because it is light, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they had thought that he went taking a rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Jesus is now being insistent that they go back to Judea, the place where the Jews are seeking to stone him. And then you'll notice a response, not from Peter, not from James and John. This reply comes from Thomas. In verse 16, Thomas called the twin, says to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas is a man who feels great passion. Thomas is the disciple who says, when all the other disciples are not sure, he says, you know what? If Jesus is going to die, I'm going to go and die with him. That's the kind of passion that he feels. The account that we see later in John's gospel, where we commonly refer to him as doubting Thomas, is one that comes in the wake of Jesus actually having been crucified. And Thomas is so shaken in his belief that he's not going to believe a testimony. He's not going to believe a word. He says, I need to see the nails and the hole in his side in order to believe that he is resurrected. And Christ mercifully shows himself to Thomas, in which Thomas makes the pro prolific declaration. He says, my Lord and my God, referring to Jesus. Thomas is special in that way, and he later, we're told, goes either to India or to Persia to die a martyr's death, bringing the gospel to those people. Thomas is no means a doubter. Thomas is a passionate man called by Jesus and set apart for ministry. The next few that we see here is James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot. Now, we don't know much about James, the son of Alphaeus, but Simon, we're told, is a member of the group which is referred to as the Zealots. Now, it's debated whether this group existed in early uh, Israel in the first century. But what we do know is if that group didn't at least exist officially, there was at least some kind of political revolution going on. The Zealots are a group of people who believe all the things the Pharisees believe, but they're willing to take military action to make sure it happens. The Zealots hated the Jewish people who were part of the tax collector group because those were sellouts to the Romans. And the Zealots said, we're going to overthrow Rome and indeed, they were well known for doing political assassinations on Roman soldiers. They were even known for kidnapping Jews who were collaborating with Romans and executing them. The Zealots were a group of people who loved Israel and who thought that Israel was greater than Rome and they were going to do everything in their military power to make sure that Israel once again reigned in the Promised Land. Simon is a Zealot. And we've already seen the other apostle that Jesus calls to himself and names among the twelve being Levi, the tax collector. And in this relationship between Simon and Levi, we get a picture of what reconciliation among lost brothers looks like in the Lord. Reconciliation for people who are distanced from one another, who have an enmity between one another, is possible in Christ.
Indeed, someone who is a zealot and who is for their whole life committed to political revolution could have fellowship with someone who is a sellout to that government that the, that the zealots wanted to overthrow. And both of them can not only have harmony together, but they can live in unity and they can die for the same gospel. Those kinds of divisions are not able to be overcome apart from Christ. There is a great many beliefs today about how we can have peace and unity despite a myriad of different beliefs, but there's only one person who can bring people with such political differences and life worldview differences together, and that is Christ. That is the only person who can bring together that kind of a gap. No human institution, no human political philosophy could bring together people that are that abjectly against one another. But Jesus can not only do it, he does it, and he takes specific mention to name both of them among the apostles whom he's going to now entrust authority to and trust them to spread the early church. In verse 16, we have another selection of names, the two Judases. Now, Judas is one of the most unfortunately named people. I'm referring to the first one here because the later Judas, Judas Iscariot, uh, is well known for his betrayal of Jesus. But Judas, the son of James, is a faithful apostle. We don't know much about him. All we do know is that he doesn't do what the later Judas does. Judas Iscariot, on the other hand, is noted here and several times in John's gospel, and indeed by account in all of the gospels, for betraying Jesus. Luke, when he mentions Judas Iscariot, this is the first time he's mentioned, he tells us in detail, this is the one who will become a traitor of Jesus. Now in our uh, stories, in the, in the kind of books that we like to write, in the books we like to read, in the movies we like to watch, there's this certain kind of specific curiosity in plots that, resolve, uh, that have traitors being a pivotal moment in the story. In fact, a, a very famous uh, story is about Caesar being stabbed in the back by Brutus. And you have Brutus betraying Caesar, and in that moment, you have this scene of both emotional uh, brokenness, of also uh, plot uh, movement. And all of that story revolves around this emotional dynamic between the person who they're betraying and the traitor. And that really starts this drama here with Judas Iscariot and Jesus. Because Jesus is the person who the rest of the 12 are fully committed to following. The rest of the group of the apostles are, uh, if you like, following Jesus to a fault. They don't even know what they're getting into most of the time, but they're convinced that they're going to follow Jesus. In fact, when Jesus asks them if they're going to turn away from him, Peter, on behalf of the 12, speaks and says, Lord, to whom else will we go? For who else has the words of life? And Judas sits there and he hears that and he is with the rest of the 12 in all of these other events of Jesus' ministry. And nevertheless, he has a premeditated, premeditated betrayal of Jesus. Judas doesn't betray Jesus in a moment of weakness. The whole ministry of Judas is marked by these stains of not really fully buying in to what's going on. But he wasn't known by the rest of the 12 to be a traitor. In fact, he's so well hidden in the group that when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, they're not sure which one it is. They don't know if it's them. They don't know if it's the person sitting next to them because Judas is so well hidden in the group. None of them know. And Judas, I think, serves to us as a real warning for the reality of wolves in the flock. Jesus teaches us several times in Scripture that there's the gospel going forth, the seed being sown, but there's going to be weeds that grow among the tares. And you can't pull up the weeds until the final day of judgment. You just have to let things sift themselves out. But he nevertheless warns the early church that there will be false professors, there will be false believers, and these people will serve to be a thorn in the side of the early church. If you look at the letters of Paul to the early church, the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all of them are written because of the existence of false doctrine in the church. All of them are written because of the existence of these people who seek to stand against the church, not from outside the church, but from inside her ranks. That is the warning that Judas early on serves for us. Now, this is not uh, an exhortation to not be a Judas, because indeed there was only one Judas. The warning is to simply observe the fact that if Judas could make it in the 12, if Judas could uh, exist unbeknownst to the rest of them, and if Judas could exist for three years following closely the teachings of Jesus, and yet still turn out to be a traitor, then we would also be wise to examine ourselves and our own hearts 
and our relationship to God. Because if Judas could listen to the preaching of Jesus himself and not convert and be personally discipled by Jesus and still remain unconverted, then there doesn't remain much of a safety net for the rest of us except for the movement of the Holy Spirit. Because the difference between Peter and James and John and the rest of the twelve and Judas is that Judas remains unconverted for his entire time interacting with Jesus. He hardens his heart, he becomes frustrated, and he becomes bitter towards Jesus. And in doing so, he ultimately bears himself out to be a traitor. And that is uh, just really the, the selection of these 12 names. And now I want to talk a little bit about the significance of these 12. What is the significance of Jesus naming the 12? Why does he have to spend a whole night in prayer for the 12? What is the deal of what's going on here? Why do we have this in Luke's gospel? Well, the first thing we can observe about the 12 is that they were very necessary for the growth of the early church. In fact, if you'll turn with me to a text, I want to look at Ephesians chapter 2 and look at the significance of these apostles. Ephesians chapter 2, and we will be in verse 19. This is uh, Paul writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Notice what Paul says about the apostles and their role. The Old Testament prophets are part of the foundation that is laid, but the apostles are the other piece of that foundation. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He is the only bedrock of which the foundation is laid, but the foundation, part of that foundation of the church, is built on the apostles, their teaching, their witness, and their ministry. And if you look uh, to the next page over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, and starting in verse 5, you will see the same kind of witness born. It says, uh, I'll start reading in verse 4. It says, When you read this, you perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, in these two accounts, we see that not only are the apostles the foundation of the church, but also the apostles carry with them revelation that is different from what else is attainable in Scripture. The apostles have a kind of divine revelation that they can carry and bear onto a church. And it says that without this revelation, we wouldn't have known this mystery that the Gentiles are included in the body of faith. It says this was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then those holy apostles and the prophets, they teach the church the truths of that revelation. So the apostles are needed not only for sound doctrine, but also they're needed for revelation from the Holy Spirit about the things of God. So the apostles serve an integral role in the foundation and laying of the church. Indeed, we could say without the apostles, the church would have never made it off the ground. The apostles are the people who the rest of the church dedicates themselves to listening to and hearing their teaching and their preaching. The apostles are those who are privileged to guard the church as well as to discern for the church, as well as to propagate the church. Without these 12 men whom Jesus was pleased to work through and select unto himself, we would indeed not have a church. Now, what else would be possibly the significance of these apostles? Well, we can say with great certainty that in Scripture, God is pleased to work through those whom we would hardly ever choose for the same kind of role. Now, this doesn't start in the New Testament. Because when God calls a people unto himself, he starts way back in the days of Noah, and he calls Noah unto himself. And after the flood, the very first thing that Noah does is he builds himself a vineyard, he gets drunk, and he disgraces himself. And this is the Noah whom God has rescued from the rest of sinful humanity to repropagate humanity. And Noah commits the same kind of sinful rebellion that everyone else does. Noah, whom God still chose, knowing that that would happen, to propagate and save humanity. The next person we meet in that same position is Abraham. 
Abraham is supposed to be the father of many nations. He's supposed to be dedicated to the one true God who is the person who goes ahead and uh, is the forefather of all of Israel. And what we see out of Abraham is something that we see later out of Moses and later out of Elijah, which is a certain kind of cowardice. Because whenever Abraham enters the realm of another king, for example, Pharaoh, he becomes afraid for his own life because he has a beautiful wife. And so what he does, instead of defending his wife and keeping her, what he does is he pretends like she's his sister so he doesn't get killed potentially by the opposing king. Abraham is a coward. And yet God chooses him to be the person who's going to be the bedrock and the foundation of the rest of the people of Israel. Abraham is a coward, but God makes him into something more. Noah was indeed a drunk, but God made him into something more. He did what could not be done apart from his work. We meet Moses in the burning bush, whom God sovereignly calls to lead his people out of slavery. And Moses is also, just like Abraham before him, quite fearful of man. So fearful, in fact, that he says, despite all of the miraculous things that I've just seen in front of my eyes, a bush on fire that's not consumed, I won't go and speak to Pharaoh unless you give me my brother to go with me, Aaron. And Aaron goes, and indeed God is faithful to work through Moses still and make him a great leader over the people of Israel, the person who gets to see and commune with God so much so that his face shines. But Moses, before God takes him and does anything with him, is a coward, just like Abraham, just like Noah, just like Peter, really. We see Elijah, right after the movement of God in terms of defeating Baal, flee from the scene because he's scared of a woman. He's scared of one woman, and he's just stood up to all of the prophets of Baal. And he's seen God move in a mighty way, and yet he retreats, and he mourns, and he laments, because he is a man. But God is pleased to use Elijah to keep his truth, to guard the faith, to glorify his name. And with those Old Testament heroes, we're also reminded of the significance of these 12 that we see listed here. The significance is not really in who they are, but in who the person is who commissions them out. Remember, an apostle carries the weight of the person who sends them. And so when Jesus sends them, that is now the only important thing about them. Peter is significant, not for anything that he does, but for the gospel message that he carries forth, ultimately sealing it as a martyr. Andrew, his brother, is significant not because of who he is or his lineage, not because of anything he accomplishes, but because of the gospel message that he proclaims through Jesus. In fact, if you were to scan the rest of this list, you would say the only thing significant about these people is who they are in relationship to Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus hadn't chosen these 12, history would have lost their testimony. They don't accomplish anything aside from what Jesus intends for them to do. And here, the 12 are marked in significance, not by their novelty or their great, uh, great uh, predictability and their um, ability to become something that uh, humans would have invested in, but they're marked by the fact that they are ordinary, normal, and plain people until Jesus calls them to be his apostles. Jesus does something that no man could do when he calls these boring people unto himself, and he uses this to start a movement that changes the world. These 12 men are the people who turn the world on its head. They propagate the early church, they do miracles, they heal, they testify in front of kings, and they do it all under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, commissioned out by Jesus to do that very thing. These are the apostles who Jesus names to himself. And if we're going to reflect uh, on the significance of these 12 men, the, those whom Jesus calls, those whom Jesus chose, I think there's an apt summary that we can find for ourselves in 2 Corinthians 4. So if you'll turn there with me. Second Corinthians 4 is Paul's assessment of his own significance. And when reflecting on the significance of himself, he says these words. I'm going to start in verse 7. It says, But we have, these tre have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Now before I go further, what Paul is saying here is that the reason God was pleased to choose jars of clay, or other words, insignificant earthen vessels for his message, is so that he could shine as the preeminent point of glory. 
we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. What does he mean by that? Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul could boast in the fact that he endures. He endures great many beatings. He has a wonderfully successful ministry. But he doesn't boast in that. He says the whole reason that his ministry is successful is to say the only reason Paul is successful, the only reason Peter is successful, the only reason this church is working together is because God has to be behind it. And Caiaphas, the high priest, actually says that. He says, if you oppose these people, you might find yourself opposing God. So just let him be. If they're really just people, they're going to die out. Their thing is not going to work. But indeed, we have a whole collection of books that tells us that it did work out that God was backing them and that the significance was not who they are or how they spoke or what they did, but instead it was the message that they carried. It was the treasure that was contained in jars of clay. That's Paul's assessment of the 12. I think there's something else that we can learn from the significance of these 12. And I think that significance uh, can be contrasted between Judas Iscariot and I think a person who later writes in reflection on Judas and his impact. And that would be John in his first letter. So if you'll turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, you will see John having become wise as a result of having known Judas. 1 John chapter 2, and I will start reading in verse 18 of this text. John is an old man at this point. Remember, he's the only one who dies a natural death. And he writes this warning to his church. Children, It is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that they might become plain to you that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. What John is writing here to the church is a warning against those who would leave their midst, who would go ahead and apostatize from the faith. And he's writing to them a certain note of encouragement. And what he's saying is, the reason they leave, the reason they go out, the reason they go away, is to bear the reality that they were indeed never of the sheep. Judas was not a believer who then later forsook the faith and abandoned Jesus. Judas never had the Holy Spirit in him. The contrast that John writes is the difference between those who leave and who bear themselves out to be false, and in verse 20, those who have been anointed with the Holy One. Those who have been anointed with the Holy One, who are dealt with the Holy Spirit, are going to endure till the end. And Paul, indeed, Paul writes, he says, uh, confirm your calling and your election by persevering. The perseverance is a test of the genuineness of the faith. The perseverance and the endurance of the early church is a measure of whether the Holy Spirit does or does not dwell within the person. So the exhortation to us as a church and what we can learn from this is we can learn to endure and to persevere. What confirms the rest of the other 11 besides Judas is the fact that they continue to hold the faith till the end. Paul, when he writes uh, in his letter to the Philippian church, he says that this is his whole desire to confirm his election, to confirm his resurrection by being found in Christ's death and by being found in Christ's resurrection. That is what he's striving for. And he says that let those who are mature think in that kind of way, that they want to run the race in order to win, that they want to run and persevere and endure in a meaningful kind of way. And they commit their whole lives to this kind of endurance. And we can learn much from that. Namely, we could become frozen with the paralyzing thought that maybe we are or are not actually saved. But what scripture does is doesn't say, 
paralyze yourself with this kind of thinking. What Scripture says is endure faithfully, and by enduring, you will confirm your testimony. By enduring, you will confirm your witness. By remaining faithful, you will confirm the fact that the Holy Spirit is indeed at work and alive within you. By bearing fruit, you confirm the kind of tree that you are. And so we are exhorted to, as these 12 are, to endure faithfully. They all suffered and died, not becoming rich for the sake of Christ, not living luxurious lives, not living in comfort, but being, as Paul says, beaten, earthenware vessels, persecuted, but not forsaken. And Christ has yet to forsake his church, and he will never forsake his church. He is coming back for his church. And so we are called to endure, to suffer, to die well, and to live to the glory of God, knowing that we are not forsaken. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you are an unchanging, everlasting, and glorious God. Father, your name is worthy of all praise. And we thank you that you have sent your Son into this world to make it possible once again to access you. That we have an advocate with the Father who intercedes on our behalf despite of our constant failings and our struggles. Lord, I thank you that you have sent your Spirit to us to keep us, to watch over us, to strengthen us. Indeed, God, you are so caring and so careful with your people that we can entrust ourselves fully to you, knowing that you are a God who comforts, who strengthens, and who loves his people well. Lord, we thank you that the testimony of Scripture confirms that, and our experience confirms that as well. You have never abandoned or forsaken your people. God, we pray that you would continue to keep us. We pray that you would continue to watch over us, that you would continue to strengthen us, to forgive us, to walk alongside of us. Lord, that you would never abandon us as you have said in your word. We pray that you would remain faithful to us and to keep us in you. Lord, we pray these things because you have promised them in your word. You have assured us by the testimony of your son and the giving of your spirit that you will return to your bride. Lord, we long for that day. We ask and we pray all these things in your name. Amen.